Chapter Nineteen of the Ivory Child by H. Rider Haggard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nineteen. Alan Quatermain misses. I had made my last round of the little corps that I facetiously named the Sharpshooters, though to tell the truth, at shooting they were anything but sharp and seen that each man was in his place behind a wall with a reserve man squatted at the rear of every pair of them, waiting to take his rifle if either of these should fall. Also I had made sure that all of them had twenty rounds of ammunition in their skin pouches. More I would not serve out, fearing lest in excitement or in panic they might fire away to the last cartridge uselessly, as before now even disciplined white troops have been known to do. Therefore I had arranged that certain old men of standing who could be trusted should wait in a place of comparative safety behind the line, carrying all our reserve ammunition, which amounted, allowing for what had been expended in practice, to nearly sixty rounds per rifle. This they were instructed to deliver from their wallets to the firing line in small lots when they saw that it was necessary, and not before. It was, I admit, an arrangement apt to miscarry in the heat of desperate battle, but I could think of none better, since it was absolutely necessary that no shot should be wasted. After a few words of exhortation and caution to the natives, who acted as sergeants to the corps, I returned to a bough-shelter that had been built for us behind a rock to get a few hours' sleep, if that were possible, before the fight began. Here I found Ragnall, who had just come in from his inspection. This was of a much more extensive nature than my own, since it involved going round some furlongs of rough walls and trenches that he had prepared with so much thought and care, and seeing that the various companies of the White Kender were ready to play their part in the defence of them. He was tired and rather excited, too much so to sleep at once, so we talked a little while, first about the prospects of the morrow's battle, as to which we were, to say the least of it, dubious, and afterwards of other things. I asked him if during his stay in this place, while I was below at the town or later, he had heard or seen anything of his wife. Nothing, he answered. These priests never speak of her, and if they did, Harut is the only one of them that I can really understand. Moreover, I have kept my word strictly, and, even when I had occasion to see the blocking of the western road, made a circuit on the mountain-top in order to avoid the neighbourhood of that house where I suppose she lives. Oh, Quatermain, my friend, my case is a hard one, as you would think if the woman you loved with your whole heart was shut up within a few hundred yards of you, and no communication with her possible after all this time of separation and agony. What makes it worse is, as I gathered from what her roots said the other day, that she is still out of her mind. That has some consolations, I replied, since the mindless do not suffer. But if such is the case, how do you account for what you and poor Savage saw that night in the town of the child? It was not altogether a fantasy, for the dress you described was the same we saw her wearing at the feast of the first fruits. I don't know what to make of it, Quatermain except that many strange things happen in the world which we mock at as insults to our limited intelligence because we cannot understand them. Very soon I was to have another proof of this remark. But what are you driving at? You are keeping something back. Only this, Ragnall. 
If your wife were utterly mad, I cannot conceive how it came about that she searched you out and spoke to you even in a vision, for the thing was not an individual dream, since both you and Savage saw her. Nor did she actually visit you in the flesh, as the door never opened, and the spider's web across it was not broken. So it comes to this. Either some part of her is not mad, but can still exercise sufficient will to project itself upon your senses, or she is dead and her disembodied spirit did this thing. Now, we know that she is not dead, for we have seen her, and her root has confessed as much. Therefore I maintain that, whatever may be her temporary state, she must still be fundamentally of a reasonable mind, as she is of a natural body. For instance, she may only be hypnotized, in which case the spell will break one day. Thank you for that thought, old fellow. It never occurred to me, and it gives me a new hope. Now listen. If I should come to grief in this business, which is very likely, and you should survive, you will do your best to get her home, will you not? Here is a codicil to my will which I drew up after that night of dream, duly witnessed by Savage and Hans. It gives to you whatever sums may be necessary in this connection, and something over for yourself. Take it. It is best in your keeping, especially as if you should be killed it has no value. Of course I will do my best, I answered as I put away the paper in my pocket. And now don't let us take any more thought of being killed, which may prevent us from getting the sleep we want. I don't mean to be killed if I can help it. I mean to give those beggars, the Black Kender, such a doing as they never had before, and then start for the coast with you and Lady Ragnall, as God willing we shall do. Good night. After this I slept like a top for some hours, as I believe Ragnall did also. When I awoke, which happened suddenly and completely, the first thing that I saw was Hans seated at the entrance to my little shelter, smoking his corn-cob pipe, and nursing the single-barrelled rifle in Tomby on his knee. I asked him what the time was, to which he replied that it lacked two hours to dawn. Then I asked him why he had not been sleeping. He replied that he had been asleep and dreamed a dream. Idly enough I inquired what dream, to which he replied, "'Rather a strange one, boss, for a man who was about to go into battle. I dreamed that I was in a large place that was full of quiet. It was light there, but I could not see any sun or moon, and the air was very soft, and tasted like food and drink, so much so, boss, that if any one had offered me a cup quite full of the best cape smoke, I should have told him to take it away. Then suddenly, boss, I saw your reverend father the predicant standing beside me, and looking just as he used to look, only younger and stronger and very happy, and so of course I knew at once that I was dead and in hell. Only I wondered where the fire that does not go out might be, for I could not see it. Presently your reverend father said to me, Good day, Hans, so you have come here at last. Now tell me, how has it gone with my son, the Bas Allen? Have you looked after him as I told you to do? I answered, I have looked after him as well I could, O reverend sir. Little enough I have done. Still, not once or twice or three times only have I offered up my life for him as was my duty, and yet we both have lived. And that I might be sure he heard the best of me, as was but natural, I told him the times, Bas, making a big story out of small things. Although, all the while I could see that he knew exactly just where I began to lie and just where I stopped from lying. Still he did not scold me, Bas. Indeed, when I had finished, he said, O oh, well done, O oh, good and faithful servant! 
words that I think I have heard him use before when he was alive, Baas, and used to preach to us for such a long time on Sunday afternoons. Then he asked, How goes it with the Baas Allan, my son, now, Hans? To which I replied, The Baas Allan is going to fight a very great battle in which he may well fall, and if I could feel sorry here, which I can't, I should weep. O oh, reverend sir, because I have died before that battle began, and therefore cannot stand at his side in the battle and be killed for him as a servant should for his master. You will stand at his side in the battle, said your missing line in printed version, J.B. Do as it is fitting that you should, and afterwards, Hans, you will make report to me of how the battle went and of what honour my son has won therein. Moreover, know this, Hans, that although while you live in the world you seem to see many other things, they are but dreams, since in all the world there is but one real thing, and its name is love, which, if it be but strong enough, the stars themselves must obey, for it is the king of every one of them, and all who dwell in them worship it day and night under many names for ever and ever. Amen. What he meant by that I am sure I don't know, Bas, seeing that I have never thought much of women, at least not for many years since my last old vrouw went and drank herself to death after lying in her sleep on the baby which I loved much better than I did her, Bas. Well, before I could ask him, or about hell either, he was gone like a whiff of smoke from a rifle mouth in a strong wind. Hans paused, puffed at his pipe, spat upon the ground in his usual reflective way, and asked, is the Bast tired of the dream, or would he like to hear the rest? I should like to hear the rest, I said in a low voice, for I was strangely moved. Well, Bas, while I was standing in that place which was so full of quiet, turning my hat in my hands and wondering what work they would set me to there among the devils, I looked up. There I saw coming towards me two very beautiful women, Bas, who had their arms round each other's necks. They were dressed in white with the little hard things that are found in shells hanging about them, and bright stones in their hair. And as they came, Bas, wherever they set a foot, flowers sprang up, very pretty flowers, so that all their path across the quiet place was marked with flowers. Birds do sang as they passed. At least I think they were birds, though I could not see them. What were they like, Hans? I whispered. One of them, Bas, the taller I did not know, but the other I knew well enough. It was she whose name is holy not to be mentioned, yet I must mention that name. It was the Missy Marie herself, as last we saw her alive many, many years ago, only grown a hundred times more beautiful. See the book called Marie by H. Ryder Haggard. Now I groaned, and Hans went on. The two white ones came up to me and stood looking at me with eyes that were more soft than those of bucks. Then the Missy Marie said to the other, This is Hans, of whom I have so often told you, O star. Here I groaned again, for how did this Hottentot know that name, or rather its sweet rendering? Then she who was called Star asked, how goes it with the one who is the heart of all three of us, O Hans? Yes, Bas, those shining ones joined me, 
the dirty little hottentot in my old clothes and smelling of tobacco with themselves when they spoke of you for i knew they were speaking of you baas which made me think i must be drunk even there in the quiet place so i told them all that i had told your reverend father and a very great deal more for they seemed never to be tired of listening and once when i mentioned that sometimes while pretending to be asleep i heard you praying aloud at night for the missy marie who died for you and for another who had been your wife whose name i did not remember but who also had died they both cried a little bass their tears shone like crystals and smelt like that stuff in a little glass tube which harut said that he had brought from some far land when he put a drop or two on your handkerchief after you were faint from the pain in your leg at the house yonder or perhaps it was the flowers that smelt for where the tears fell there sprang up white lilies shaped like two babes hands held together in prayer hearing this i hid my face in my hands lest hans should see human tears unscented with attar of roses and bade him continue baas the white one who was called star asked me of your son the young baas harry and i told her that when last i had seen him he was strong and well and would make a bigger man than you were whereat she sighed and shook her head then the missy marie said tell the baas hans that also i have a child which he will see one day but it is not a son after this they too said something about love but what it was i cannot remember since even as i repeat this dream to you it is beginning to slip away from me fast as a swallow skimming the water their last words however i do remember they were say to the baas that we who never met in life but who here are as twin sisters wait and count the years and count the months and count the days and count the hours and count the minutes and count the seconds until once more he shall hear our voices calling to him across the night that's what they say baas then they were gone and only the flowers remained to show that they had been standing there now i set off to bring you the message and travelled a very long way at a great rate if jana himself had been after me i could not have gone more fast at last i got out of that quiet place and among mountains where there were dark kloofs and there in the kloofs i heard zulu impis singing their war-song yes they sang the ingoma or something very like it now suddenly in the pass of the mountains along which i sped there appeared before me a very beautiful woman whose skin shone like the best copper coffee-kettle after i have polished it baas she was dressed in a leopard-like mucha and wore on her shoulders a fur caross and about her neck a circlet of blue beads and from her hair there rose one crane's feather tall as a walking-stick and in her hand she held a little spear no flower sprang beneath her feet when she walked towards me and no birds sang only the air was filled with the sound of a royal salute which rolled among the mountains like the roar of thunder and her eyes flashed like summer lightning now i let my hands fall and stared at him for well i knew what was coming stand yellow man she said and give me the royal salute so i gave her the bayetti though who she might be i did not know since i did not think it wise to stay to ask her if it were hers of right although i should have liked to do so then she said the old man on the plain yonder and those two pale white ones have talked 
to you of their love for your master, the Lord Macumazahan. I tell you, little yellow dog, that they do not know what love can be. There is more love for him in my eyes alone than they have in all that makes them fair. Say it to the Lord Macumazahan that, as I know well, he goes down to battle, and that the Lady Mamina will be with him in the battle as, though he saw her not, she has been with him in other battles, and will be with him till the river of time has run over the edge of the world and is lost beyond the sun. Let him remember this when Jana rushes on and death is very near to him to-day, and let him look, for then perchance he shall see me. Be gone now, yellow dog, to the heels of your master, and play your part well in the battle, for of what you do or leave undone you shall give account to me. Say that Mamina sends her greetings to the Lord Macumazahan, and that she adds this, that when the old man and the white ones told you that love is the secret blood of the worlds which makes them to be, they did not lie. Love reigns, and I, Mamina, am its priestess and the heart of Macumazahan is my holy house. Then Baas, I tumbled off a precipice and woke up here, and Baas, as we may not light a fire, I have kept some coffee hot for you buried in warm ashes. And without another word he went to fetch that coffee, leaving me shaken and amazed. For what kind of dream was it which revealed to an old Hottentot all these mysteries and hidden things about persons whom he had never seen and of whom I had never spoken to him? My father and my wife Marie might be explained, for with these he had been mixed up. But how about Stella, and above all Mamina? Although, of course, it was possible that he had heard of the latter, who had made some stir in her time. But to hit her off as he had done in all her pride— splendour and dominion of desire well that was his story which perhaps fortunately i lacked time to analyse or brood upon since there was much in it calculated to unnerve a man just entering the crisis of a desperate fray indeed a minute or so later as i was swallowing the last of the coffee messengers arrived about some business i forget what sent by ragnall i think who had risen before i woke I turned to give the pannikin to Hans, but he had vanished in his snake-like fashion, so I threw it down upon the ground and devoted my mind to the questions raised in Ragnall's message. Next minute scouts came in who had been watching the camp of the Black Kender all night. They were sleeping not more than half a mile away, in an open place on the slope of the hill with pickets thrown out round them, intending to advance upon us, it was said, as soon as the sun rose since because of their number they feared lest to march at night should throw them into confusion, and, in case of their falling into an ambush, bring about disaster. Such at least was the story of two spies whom our people had captured. There had been some question as to whether we should not attempt a night attack upon their camp, of which I was rather in favour. After full debate, however, the idea had been abandoned, owing to the fewness of our numbers, the dislike which the white kender shared with the black of attempting to operate in the dark, and the well-chosen position of our enemy, whom it would be impossible to rush before we were discovered by their outposts. What I hoped in my heart was that they might try to rush us, notwithstanding the story of the two captured spies, and in the gloom, after the moon had sunk low and before the dawn came, become entangled in our pitfalls and outlying entrenchments, where we should be able to destroy a great number of them. 
Only on the previous afternoon that cunning old fellow Hans had pointed out to me how advantageous such an event would be to our cause, and, while agreeing with him, I suggested that probably the Black Kendam knew this as well as we did, as the prisoners had told us. Yet that very thing happened, and through Hans himself, thus. Old Harut had come to me just one hour before the dawn to inform me that all our people were awake and at their stations, and to make some last arrangements as to the course of the defence, also about our final concentration behind the last line of walls and in the first court of the temple, if we should be driven from the outer entrenchments. He was telling me that the oracle of the child had uttered words at the ceremony that night which he and all the priests considered were the most favourable import, news to which I listened with some impatience, feeling as I did that this business had passed out of the range of the child and its oracle. As he spoke, suddenly through the silence that precedes the dawn, there floated to our ears the unmistakable sound of a rifle. Yes, a rifle shot, half a mile or so away, followed by the roaring murmur of a great camp unexpectedly alarmed at night. "'Who can have fired that?' I asked. "'The Black Kender have no guns.' He replied that he did not know, unless some of my fifty men had left their posts. While we were investigating the matter, scouts rushed in with the intelligence that the Black Kender, thinking apparently that they were being attacked, had broken camp and were advancing towards us. We passed a warning all down the lines and stood to arms. Five minutes later, as I stood listening to that approaching roar, filled with every kind of fear and melancholy foreboding such as the hour and the occasion might well have evoked, through the gloom, which was dense, the moon being hidden behind the hill, I thought I caught sight of something running towards me like a crouching man. I lifted my rifle to fire, but, reflecting that it might be no more than a hyena, and fearing to provoke a fusillade from my half-trained company, did not do so. Next instant I was glad indeed, for immediately on the other side of the wall, behind which I was standing, I heard a well-known voice gasp out, "'Don't shoot, boss, it is I.' "'What have you been doing, Hans?' I said, as he scrambled over the wall to my side, limping a little, as I fancied. "'Boss,' he puffed. I have been paying the black kender a visit. I crept down between their stupid outposts, who are as blind in the dark as a bat in daytime, hoping to find a jana and put a bullet into his leg or trunk. I didn't find him, Bas, although I heard him. But one of their captains stood up in front of a watch-fire, giving a good shot. My bullet found him, Bas, for he tumbled back into the fire, making the sparks fly this way and that. Then I ran, and, as you see, got here quite safely. "'Why did you play that fool's trick?' I asked, seeing that it ought to have cost you your life. "'I shall die just when I have to die, not before, Bas,' he replied in the intervals of reloading the little rifle. "'Also it was the trick of a wise man, not of a fool, seeing that it has made the black Kendall think that we were attacking them, and caused them to hurry on to attack us in the dark over ground that they do not know. Listen to them coming.' As he spoke, a roar of sound told us that the great charge had swept round a turn there was in the pass, and was heading towards us up the strait. Ivory horns brayed, captains shouted orders, the very mountains shook beneath the beating of thousands of feet of men and horses, while in one great yell that echoed from the cliffs and forests and went up the battle-cry of Jana, Jana! a mixed tumult of noise which contrasted very strangely with the utter silence in our ranks. "'They will be among the pitfalls presently,' sniggered Hans, shifting his weight nervously from one leg on to the other. "'Ark, they are going into them.' 
it was true screams of fear and pain told me that the front ranks had begun to fall horse and foot together into the cunningly devised snares of which with so much labour we had dug many concealing them with earth spread over thin wickerwork or rather interlaced boughs into them went the forerunners to be pierced by the sharp fire-hardened stakes set at the bottom of each pit vainly did those who were near enough to understand their danger call to the ranks behind to stop they could not or would not comprehend and had no room to extend their front forward surged the human torrent thrusting in front of it to death by wounds or suffocation in those deadly holes till one by one they were filled level with the ground by struggling men and horses over whom the army still rushed on how many perished there i do not know but after the battle was over we found scarcely a pit that was not crowded to the brim with dead truly this device of ragnall's for if i had conceived the idea which was unfamiliar to the kendah it was he who had carried it out in so masterly a fashion had served us well still the enemy surged on since the pits were only large enough to hold a tithe of them till at length horsemen and footmen mixed up together in an inextricable confusion their mighty mass became faintly visible quite close to us a blacker blot upon the gloom then my turn came when they were not more than fifty yards away from the first wall i shouted an order to my riflemen to fire aiming low and set the example by loosing both barrels of an elephant gun at the thickest of the mob at that distance even the most inexperienced shots could not miss such a mark especially as those bullets that went high struck among the oncoming troops behind or caught the horsemen lifted above their fellows indeed of the first few rounds i do not think that one was wasted while often single balls killed or injured several men the result was instantaneous the black kendah who be it remembered were totally unaccustomed to the effects of rifle fire and imagined that we only possessed two or three guns in all stopped their advance as though paralyzed for a few seconds there was silence except for the intermittent crackle of the rifles as my men loaded and fired next came the cries of the smitten men and horses that were falling everywhere and then the unmistakable sound of a stampede they have gone that was too warm for them boss chuckled hans exultingly yes i answered when i had at length succeeded in stopping the firing but i expect they will come back with the light still that trick of yours has cost them dear hans by degrees the dawn began to break it was i remember a particularly beautiful dawn resembling a gigantic and vivid rose opening in the east or a cup of brightness from which many coloured wines were poured all athwart the firmament very peaceful also for not a breath of wind was stirring but what a scene the first rays of the sun revealed upon that narrow stretch of pass in front of us everywhere the pitfalls and trenches were filled with still surging heaps of men and horses while all about lay dead and wounded men the red harvest of our rifle fire it was dreadful to contrast the heavenly peace above and the hellish horror beneath we took count and found that up to this moment we had not lost a single man one only having been slightly wounded by a thrown spear as is common among semi-savages this fact filled the white kendah with undue exultation thinking that as the beginning was so the end must be 
They cheered and shouted, shaking each other's hands, then fell to eating the food which the women brought them with appetite, chattering incessantly, although as a general rule they were a very silent people. Even the grave Harut, who arrived full of congratulations, seemed as high-spirited as a boy, till I reminded him that the real battle had not yet commenced. The Black Kendah had fallen into a trap and lost some of their number, that was all, which was fortunate for us, but could scarcely affect the issue of the struggle, since they had many thousands left. Ragnall, who had come up from his lines, agreed with me. As he said, these people were fighting for life as well as honour, seeing that most of the corn which they needed for their sustenance was stored in great heaps, either in or to the rear of the temple behind us. Therefore they must come on until they won or were destroyed. How with our small force could we hope to destroy this multitude? That was the problem which waited upon our hearts. About a quarter of an hour later two spies that we had set upon the top of the precipitous cliffs, whence they had a good view of the pass beyond the bend, came scrambling down the rocks like monkeys by a route that was known to them. These boys, for there were no more, reported that the Black Kendah were reforming their army beyond the bend of the pass, and that the cavalry were dismounting and sending their horses to the rear, evidently because they found them useless in such a place. A little later solitary men appeared from behind the bend, carrying bundles of long sticks to each of which was attached a piece of white cloth, a proceeding that excited my curiosity. Soon its object became apparent. Swiftly these men, of whom in the end there may have been thirty or forty, ran to and fro, testing the ground with spears in search of pitfalls. I think they only found a very few that had not been broken into, but in front of these, and also of those that were already full of men and horses, they set up the flags as a warning that they should be avoided in the advance. Also they removed a number of their wounded. We had great difficulty in restraining the white kender from rushing out to attack them, which of course would only have led us into a trap in our turn, since they would have fled and conducted their pursuers into the arms of the enemy. Nor would I allow my riflemen to fire, as the result must have been many misses and a great waste of ammunition, which ere long would be badly wanted. I, however, did shoot two or three, then gave it up as the remainder took no notice whatever. When they had thoroughly explored the ground, they retired until, a little later, the Black Kendah army began to appear, marching in serried regiments and excellent order round the bend, till perhaps eight or ten thousand of them were visible, a very fierce and awe-inspiring impi. Their front ranks halted between three and four hundred yards away, which I thought farther off than it was advisable to open fire on them with Snyder rifles, held by unskilled troops. Then came a pause, which at length was broken by the blowing of horns and a sound of exultant shouting beyond the turn of the pass. Now from round this turn appeared the strangest sight that I think my eyes had ever seen. Yes, there came the huge elephant, Jana, at a slow, shambling trot. On his back and head were two men in whom, with my glasses, I recognized the lame priest, whom I already knew too well and Simba, the king of the Black Kenda himself, gorgeously apparelled and wearing a long spear, seated in a kind of wooden chair. Round the brute's neck were a number of bright metal chains, twelve in all, and each of these chains was held by a spearman who ran alongside, six on one side and six on the other. 
Lastly, ingeniously fastened to the end of his trunk were three other chains to which were attached spiked knobs of metal. On he came as docilely as any Indian elephant used for carrying teak logs, passing through the centre of the host up a wide lane which had been left, I suppose, for his convenience, and intelligently avoiding the pitfalls filled with dead. I thought that he would stop among the first ranks, but not so. Slackening his pace to a walk, he marched forwards towards our fortifications. Now, of course, I saw my chance, and made sure that my double-barrelled elephant rifle was ready, and that Hans held a second rifle, also double-barrelled and of similar calibre, full-cocked in such a position that I could snatch it from him in a moment. "'I'm going to kill that elephant,' I said. "'Let no one else fire. Stand still, and you will see the god Jana die.' Still the enormous beast floundered forward, up to that moment I had never realized how truly huge it was, not even when it stood over me in the moonlight about to crush me with its foot. Of this I am sure, that none to equal it ever lived in Africa, at least in any times of which I have knowledge. "'Fire, boss,' whispered Hans. "'It is near enough.' But, like the Frenchman and the cock-pheasant, I determined to wait until it stopped, wishing to finish it with a single ball, if only for the prestige of the thing. At length it did stop, and opening its cavern of a mouth, lifted its great trunk and trumpeted, while Simba, standing up in his chair, began to shout out some command to us to surrender to the god Jana, the invincible, the invulnerable. "'I will show you if you are invulnerable, my boy,' said I to myself, glancing round to make sure that Hans had the second rifle ready, and catching sight of Ragnall and Harut, and all the white kender standing up in their trenches, breathlessly awaiting the end, as were the black kender a few hundred yards away. Never could there have been a fairer shot, and one more certain to result in a fatal wound. The brute's head was up, and its mouth was open. All I had to do was send a hard-tipped bullet crashing through the pallet to the brain behind. It was so easy that I could have made a bet that I could have finished him with one hand tied behind me. I lifted the heavy rifle. I got the sight dead on to a certain spot at the back of that red cave. I pressed the trigger. The charge boomed, and nothing happened. I heard no bullet strike, and Jana did not even take the trouble to close his mouth. An exclamation of, Ooh! went up from the watchers. Before it had died away, the second bullet followed the first, with the same result, or rather lack of result, and another louder, Ooh! arose. Then Jana tranquilly shut his mouth, having finished trumpeting and as though to give me a still better target, turned broadside on and stood quite still. With an inward curse I snatched the second rifle, and aiming behind the ear at a spot which long experience told me covered the heart, let drive again, first one barrel and then the other. Jana never stirred, no bullet thudded, no mark of blood appeared upon his hide. The horrible thought overcame me that I, Alan Quatermain, I, the famous shot, the renowned elephant-hunter, had four times missed this haystack of a brute from a distance of forty yards. So great was my shame that I almost fainted. Through a kind of mist I heard various ejaculations. 
"'Great heavens!' said Ragnall. "'Almakti!' remarked Hans. "'The child help us!' muttered Harut. All the rest of them stared at me as though I were a freak or a lunatic. Then somebody laughed nervously, and immediately everybody began to laugh. Even the distant army of the Black Kendah became convulsed with roars of unholy merriment, and I, Alan Quatermain, was the centre of all this mockery, till I felt as though I were going mad. Suddenly the laughter ceased, and once more Simba the King began to roar out something about Jana the Invincible and Invulnerable, to which the White Kendah replied with cries of Magic and Bewitched, Bewitched. Yes, yelled Simba, no bullet can touch Jana the God, not even those of the White Lord who was brought from far to kill him. Hans leaped on to the top of the wall, where he danced up and down like an intoxicated monkey, and screamed, "'Then where is Jonah's left eye? Did not my bullet put it out like a lamp? If Jonah is invulnerable, why did my bullet put out his left eye?' Hans ceased from dancing on the wall, and, steadying himself, lifted the little rifle in Tombi, shouting, "'Let us see whether after all this beast is a god or an elephant.' Then he touched the trigger— and simultaneously with the report I heard the bullet clap and saw blood appear in Jana's hide just by the very spot over the heart at which I had aimed without result. Of course the soft ball driven from a small-bore rifle with a light charge of powder was far too weak to penetrate to the vitals. Probably it did not do much more than pierce through the skin and an inch or two of flesh behind it. Still, its effects upon this invulnerable god were of a marked order. He whipped round, lifted his trunk, and screamed with rage and pain. Then he lumbered off back towards his own people, at such a pace that the attendants who held the chains on either side of him were thrown over and forced to leave go of him, while the king and the priest upon his back could only retain their seats by clinging to the chair and the rope about his neck. The result was satisfactory so far as the dispelling of magical illusions went, but it left me in a worse position than before, since it now became evident that what had protected Jana from my bullets was nothing more supernatural than my own lack of skill. Oh, never in my life did I drink of such a cup of humiliation as it was my lot to drain to the dregs in this most unhappy hour. Almost did I hope that I might be killed at once. And yet, and yet, how was it possible that with all my skill I should have missed this towering mountain of flesh four times in succession? The question is one to which I have never discovered any answer, especially as Hans hit it easily enough, which at the time I wished heartily he had not done, since his success only served to emphasize my miserable failure. Fortunately, just then a diversion occurred which freed my unhappy self from further public attention— with a shout and a roar, the great army of the Black Kendah woke into life. The advance had begun. End of chapter 19